obvious that this lady did not understand anything of the nature of forgiveness. T.R. Stevenson, at the turn of the century, told the story of a merchant in Shanghai, a very wealthy man who had two sons. The elder son was quite a wastrel. He had lived a very dissolute life. He had completely ruined himself. He had wasted all of his share of the family patrimony. And finally, he was driven from home after he had become accustomed to living in the, uh, with evil men, thieves and robbers. He began to live with one group of men and joined this band of thieves who broke into his own father's home, stole a chest of money. He was discovered as one of the thieves. To his surprise, he received a message from a very trusted servant of his father to tell him that on the promise of a better life, he would be forgiven and would be welcomed home and could return. The servant advised him that if he were ever going to change his ways and return, it was now or never. Young man thought over his circumstances and the possibilities and decided he would return home. He went to his father's house and was received with every single element of joy. He couldn't believe the reception he had. They had provided for him a new outfit of clothing. They provided for him a banquet. And he went to bed thrilled that he was forgiven. He awoke in the middle of the night with horrible, agonizing pains that got worse and worse and realized that his own father had poisoned him. And that night he died in agony. Again, it is obvious that this father had no conception of the nature of forgiveness. Do I really need to read the parable of the prodigal son given to us in Luke's gospel to give the sharp and wonderful contrast to a God who forgives? Isn't the message wonderful that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? The messages of the last two chapel periods have set the stage for this discussion of the forgiveness of God. Friday, our hearts were instructed concerning the holiness of God. And Monday, we were enlightened concerning the jealousy of God. Now, I have no desire to attempt to re-preach these excellent messages. And so my review is not a review of the message or any way that it was presented. But I want to review the impact, what we should have learned from those messages, just for a moment so that we will see the background of forgiveness. The holiness of God was deeply impressed and forever emblazoned upon the minds of the children of Israel at Sinai. To underscore his absolute holiness, that absolute separation of sin from any degree, God commanded before he would meet with the people of Israel that they put a boundary around the tabernacle, around the pardon me, a boundary around the mountain upon which he was to appear. And the Lord stated, whosoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
So holy was God, he had to separate man from him. Any sinful man coming into contact with God must die. And when God did appear, the mountain appeared to be on fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked violently. You see, an encounter with a holy God is a terrifying experience. Again, we see the holiness of God manifested in the prophet Isaiah. When he saw the Lord God high and lifted up, when he saw this awesome holiness of God, Isaiah recounted that the foundations of the threshold of the temple trembled at the voice of God. The temple filled with smoke and the whole earth was filled with the glory and horror at this marvelous holiness of God. Isaiah cried, Woe is me! To see the absolute holiness of God brings terror to the heart of a man who realizes that he is sinful. The most awesome and tragic face of God appears in the picture that John the Apostle and Prophet gives us in the book of Revelation chapter 21. There God sits upon the white throne of His holiness. And so awesome is His presence that heaven and earth attempt to flee and there is no place for them to hide. One may never take the holiness of God lightly. Now that message should have caused us to realize with this holiness of God, there is a contradictory aspect of the sinfulness of man. And that puts us in a very, very difficult situation. Especially when you couple this with the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God was presented so marvelously on Monday. And he pictures God, one who will not tolerate those who do not give him the glory that is rightfully his. Just one glimpse at the aspect of jealousy of God is given to us by Ezekiel's portrayal of God's response to those who would claim the land of Israel for their own. In the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, God looks out upon those nations that come and say, we're going to take your land. The Lord uses that very term jealousy and states, my fury will mount in my anger and in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath. I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel and they shall know that I am the Lord. God is a holy God. He does not want us to infringe upon that holiness. He is a jealous God. Any sin is actually taking another God before God. And God's wrath is going to be made manifest. From this brief glimpse of these two attributes of God, His holiness and His jealousy, it would appear that man is indeed in deep trouble. If God is as holy as He says He is, and His jealousy is as burning and as powerful as God says it is, what hope is there for anyone? God, being absolutely holy, cannot ignore the sins of man. Here is a lesson you must understand. God cannot ignore sin. That would make him immoral and destroy his character as God. Therefore, it seems that the only alternative to God's wrath, to God's holiness upon forgive, ignoring sin, would be to punish the sin. And that would put all of us where we really deserve. But just at this point, the wonderful love of God steps in and proclaims, as the psalmist states, that He is a God who forgives all our sin. God cannot ignore sin. He must punish sin unless He can find a way to forgive sin. And it is just this thought 
that I want to turn our attention to for the next few minutes that are allotted to us. The forgiveness of God. Time permitting, we are going to discuss the nature of forgiveness, the extent of forgiveness, the condition of forgiveness, and the application of forgiveness to our everyday lives. First, what is forgiveness? We use the term so lightly that we never define it. I spent much time looking through some of the best commentaries, hopefully finding a little help on the word forgiveness. But in one set of commentaries, I traced the word entirely through, and this commentator, who makes technical comments on every other subject, never even once attempted to explain the word forgiveness. We take it for granted, and we need to understand what is forgiveness. Let me give you a dictionary definition, then I'll give you the words that the Bible uses. The American Heritage Dictionary defines forgiveness to excuse for a fault or offense, to pardon, to pass over an offense, and to free the offender from the consequences of it. To forgive is to grant pardon without harboring resentment. We see then that forgiveness actually is the same thing as the word pardon. And it has all of the same ramifications. I find it fascinating that altogether there are seven words in the Bible, three Hebrew and four Greek words, used to describe the word forgiveness and translated in our various uh, versions as forgive, forgiveness, forgiving. I'm only going to deal with six of those since one of them appears only once and there is a little theological explanation that would be necessary with that word, so I'll only use six. I'm not going to go it technically. I do not claim to be a scholar in the realm of Hebrew. I get my scholarship from others and so therefore I can blame them if there is a mistake. So I will give you only the words very quickly and I'll give you a reference so that you can see how this word is used. I learned that in the forgiveness, one of the words that is used in the Hebrew is the word nasa, which means to lift up or away. This pictures sin as a heavy burden, something that is placed upon us. And once God reaches down, he picks up that burden and takes it away. Psalm 32, 4 and 5. Here is a beautiful picture of it. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. The psalmist feels himself crushed down by the heavy burden of sin. And God lifts it up and takes it away. That's forgiveness. A more frequent word is the word kafar, which means to cover. This has the idea of pouring something over this. And in Psalm 78, 38, but he being compassionate forgave their iniquity. That is, he poured the blood over this. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, we see the picture of the Day of Atonement. And in verses 18 and 19, the culminating event of that day, the high priest on the one day of the year alone goes into the Holy of Holies. And in verse 18 of Leviticus 16, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood, the bull, the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities 
of the sons of Israel. Consecrated. Hear the word make atonement. He is going to cover. And the word cover speaks of the taking of the blood of the sacrifice and putting it on that altar. There in the Holy of Holies, that braze, that, that altar indicated judgment. And there at the mercy seat, even though it was an altar that spoke of judgment, once the blood of the sacrifice was poured on the mercy seat, the eyes of Almighty God could not see the sin that lay beneath the blood of the sacrifice. Here we see forgiveness as God pouring the blood of the sacrifice over it and covering our sins so that he sees them no more. Another word is salak, which means to send away or to let go. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, when thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against thee, if they turn to thee again and confess thy name, and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them back to the land which thou didst give to their fathers. Notice, Israel has been sent away to a foreign land because of their sins. This is the intone of the prayer of Solomon. And therefore, when God sends their sins away, He may bring Israel back to Himself. Here we see forgiveness as the taking of sins. After the heavy burden has been moved from the heart, after blood has been poured to cover any stain of sin, then God can take our sins and send them away. Three words from the New Testament. In the prayer that we are told to pray by the Lord, he tells us in Luke 6, 37, forgive and you shall be forgiven. Matthew's equivalent is forgive us our debts. And Luke takes that same thought and uses a word that speaks of the release of a debt, that we have a debt that we owe. And the word to forgive means to free someone from the obligation of a debt. When we sin, we have an obligation to God. We owe God something. But unbelievably, from our point of view, the debt is so great that we can never pay it on our own. And now God releases us from the payment of the debt. Perhaps you have been in the situation where someone wrote you a note. You had a debt that you owed that was more than you could pay. And someone wrote back and said, I forgive you that debt. That means you don't owe it anymore. You see, forgiveness means freedom from obligation of payment of the debt. In Romans 4, 7, blessed are those, quoting from the Old Testament, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. This is a Greek word, atheomi. The word atheomi is a strong word meaning to send away. It is actually the normal word to use when a husband divorces his wife. He sends her away. But notice, this is a legal act. And in divorce, when the husband and wife are divorced, they are legally separated. No more are there legal obligations on the part of the one to the other. So God takes our sins and divorces them from us. They are not my sins anymore. They don't belong to me. We're in different families now. Here is God's forgiveness. And finally, in Colossians, a sixth word, the word charizestai. The word charizestai implies from a standpoint of grace. It comes from the word which means grace, to be gracious. 
to bestow freely. And here we read in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Here then, in these six words, we see this marvelous thing, that in forgiveness, God pays the price of our sin, releasing us from that great debt. He lifts the heavy burden of sin from the soul and sends it far away, completely divorcing the sin from our souls. With the blood of the eternal sacrifice, He covers any possible stain, so that even the all-seeing eye of God can never again look upon our sins. And all of this stems from His grace. He forgives freely and happily. That is the nature of forgiveness. What a marvelous thing it is to have a God who is not only holy and jealous of His holiness, but a God who knows how to forgive man. I think at this point it would do us well to observe then the extent of God's forgiveness. God forgives, but what can God forgive? Again, I'm going to rehearse for us quickly what the Bible tells God can forgive. In Psalm 78, 38, but he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity. Again, in Psalm 25, 18, the psalmist prays, forgive all my sins. And again, in Colossians 2.13 that we have just read, He has forgiven us all our transgressions, iniquity, sins, transgressions. And in Matthew, forgive us our debts. What I am pointing out should be coming clear to you. God can forgive any type of sin that man can commit. When we stop and ask, can God forgive this sin? May I point out, this is not an element of humility on our part. This is not an awareness of the depth of our own sin. The man that says, I have committed a sin so great that God cannot even forgive it, actually is making himself greater than God. We are arrogant in the pride, even in our confession of sins. This says that any sin that any man can commit, any sin that any woman can commit, can be forgiven by Almighty God. And I think it even more than that. Shall we look at particular sins? God could forgive the faithlessness of Abraham when he doubted God's ability to protect him. He forgave Abraham for the lie that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. He could forgive Isaac for that same sin. He could forgive David for the sin of murder. He forgave David for the sin of adultery. There is no sin of any particular nature. And I ask you this morning to examine your heart very carefully at this point. For it may be that the Holy Spirit has been laying upon your heart that deep burden of some sin that you have kept hidden away. You have never forsaken that sin. You have never confessed it, fearing that God couldn't forgive your sin. Ah, oh, my friend, this morning, listen to what the Word of God says. He can forgive all of our sins. And at this point, someone asked the question, God can forgive every kind of sin, I know, but what about sins that you keep on committing? How many sins can God forgive? 
Once again, we can never limit God. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 18, here is a lesson that I want you to see. And it will help you many times in life. Because the Lord is teaching a lesson here that I think is vital to us. In chapter 18, the disciples come to him, verse 21, Peter especially, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Luke's account of this adds one thought. The question is, how many times in one day? And so we see that interesting little point. Now, Peter thought he was going to show he was about ready to graduate from seminary. He had been with the Lord some time now. This is near the end of the Lord's life, perhaps nearly three years. Now, the Pharisees, who were noted for their great righteousness, taught that you had to forgive a brother three times. And after that, no more forgiveness was necessary. So Peter said, hmm, three times. I'm going to double it and add one for good measure. And that will show I am twice as righteous as a Pharisee. <laughs> How does it feel to be a bigger Pharisee than a Pharisee, Peter? You know, uh, So we get that very idea in our own mind. We think because we go beyond the point someone else goes beyond, that therefore we're not Pharisaical. But that is one of the most vicious forms of Phariseeism. To pride ourselves that we're more gracious than others. Be careful. This is insidious. And so Peter says, Lord, shall I forgive him 70 times? Now the Lord said, no, Peter, I said you 70 times 7. Now I don't really, really believe that any of us would be so inclined to take the Lord literally at this point. Now I don't really get my notebook out and put down a list of different names of people who have uh, sinned against me. And I take out my pen and I mark down, oh, okay, there, Robert, you've got six down, you've got a few to go. And then I'll say, oh boy, I'm getting up to 400s on this one. I'm going to really have fun when this one is over. Is that the idea? The point is this, that if you get accustomed to forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, you will come to the point where forgiveness is natural. Listen, if God tells us to do this, can he do any less? My friends, one of the greatest traps that the devil has is to get you into the position where you stop confessing a particular sin. We get embarrassed about it. A man went to a very formal concert. Unfortunately, he was delayed and was just almost late. Now, that's the unpardonable sin at a very formal concert to arrive late. I watched the great Arthur Rubinstein in a concert one evening. He was getting ready to play and a woman walked down the aisle. Rubinstein stopped, turned around, crossed his arms and watched her every fraction of the inch down the aisle. And when she finally got seated, he nodded to her, are you ready? Uh, and finally started. Uh, then he said, now that she is seated, we may start. <laughs> You do not come late. And so this man was almost late to a concert. He was embarrassed about that. And in his haste to get in his seat, he stepped full force right on the open toe of a lady dressed very elegantly. Uh, she squealed accidentally, not uh, uh, deliberately, of course, and let out a yelp. And he, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He was deeply humiliated. 
He confessed, you see. He has forgiveness. She was gracious. Oh, no problem. On the way out at intermission, someone behind him slipped just a little bit and pushed him just as he was stepping out. And guess what happened the second time? Right on that same foot of that same lady. He was totally devastated. This time he apologized profusely. And again, a very gracious, uh, humorous acknowledgement of it. Would you believe on the way in? Once again, just at a very inopportune moment, the person in front got up to turn around and knocked him and he landed on her lap. Three times is just too much. And this time the apology was deeper and more sincere, but the response a little less encouraging. Can you guess what happened after the program was over? He went out the other way. He wasn't about to chance that again. Listen what I'm just telling you. When you commit an act of sin and you know that God is your Heavenly Father and you are really a child, the first impulse should be, Oh Lord, please forgive me. And the Lord says, Certainly I'll forgive you. But we are human. We're weak. And we do that same thing again. And this time we are a little more reluctant to take it to God. And it is the devil's trap to get you to the point where you think, I've done that sin so many times, God cannot forgive me. Friends, I don't care how many times you commit an act of sin. I'm not giving license to go out and do this willingly and freely and gladly. But in our weakness and in our helplessness, sometimes we, confess, we commit the same sin, confess it and confess it and confess it. Please don't forget God can forgive any number of sins any time. I want you to listen carefully for I've got something now that I think will make your day and I trust will make your life. For you see, we gave a definition of sin, uh, of forgiveness at the very beginning that to forgive is to grant pardon without harboring resentment. It is to pass over an offense and to free the offender from the consequences of it. Now listen, when we pardon someone, when we forgive someone, it is always a partial pardon, a partial forgiveness. For being weak and mortal, we can never totally remove that transgression from our minds. Try as hard as we will. We do not have that capacity. But let me read you from the Word of God. May I suggest you copy down these references if you do not already know them? I want you to get these sequence, uh, this sequence of references. This will give you a joy in your life. It will give you a freedom from sin that is hard to believe. Because God tells us what He is going to do for us. What He does when He forgives sins. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. God takes our sins. Shall we use the old picture of a chalkboard where there is writing on the board? God takes the eraser of his mighty love and cleanses that board and wipes it clean and blots it out. Or shall we even use another figure of putting a writing on a paper and then pouring ink over it so that that blot of ink completely covers it? When God forgives sin, He erases it. No longer on the records. Oh, what a marvelous thing. 
to know that if we confess, God takes that eraser and removes it from our record. Isaiah 38:17. Isaiah 38:17. Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. God not only erases his sins, but he takes them and puts them in back of him. A liberal preacher was talking to an innocent young believer who had said all of her sins were behind God's back. And he smirked and said, hey, what happens if God turns around? She smiled and said, sir, he said he put them behind his back. And when he turns around, they're still behind his back. <laughs> God can never see the sins again. That says God not only erases them from the legal record, he removes them from his memory. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. God takes our sins, erases them from the legal record, erases them from his memory by putting them behind his back. And then while they're behind his back, he gives them a gigantic push and they go so far that from east to west. We'll never see those sins again. Micah chapter 7 verse 19. If you have an Old Testament this morning, Micah 7 19 is one of those verses I wish you would look up and read and really put in your mind. I want us to just observe that just for a moment. I never pass these two verses without reading them in their entirety. They just do such a great bit for my soul. Who is a God like unto thee? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God takes our sins and throws them into the depths of the sea. But listen to this. This is not a God who, like us, sometimes is rather begrudging. Remember the lady whose foot was stepped on and who got sat upon? Her forgiveness, after a while, was rather begrudging. Her forgiveness was rather limited on a small scale. Her statement was really, I'll forgive you because politeness demands that I forgive. And now we see God. Read this. He delights. In his unchanging love, he delights in mercy. God shouts for joy when he forgives. Do you remember the story that the Lord said, I tell you there is rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels over a sinner that repents? Notice it was not the angels that were rejoicing. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. That is God the Father. God the Father makes the courts of heaven ring with laughter and with joy when a person confesses. The thing that you can do that makes God the happiest is to confess every single sin of your heart to Him. What a marvelous thing. And finally, Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. When one confesses, God keeps his promise. The soul is free from sin. 
Listen, you accepted salvation by faith. Please, underscore this in your mind. Every person who has ever been born again has said in the sinner's prayer, Lord, I confess my sins, forgive my sins, and accept me as your child. And everyone in this room I trust has done that. If you have not, even now is a good time to do this. Here we can look to God in faith and accept His pardon for the forgiveness of sins leading up to salvation. But it has been my experience that the average Christian doesn't really trust God to forgive sins committed after salvation. We feel that somehow God's going to get us. We've committed sin. Yeah, we've confessed it, but boy, God's going to get me. I want you to hear the Word of God. The one who has accepted has had his sins removed, placed behind the back of God, taken from the legal record, removed from the mind of God, and God puts them behind his back, pushes them from east to west, and with a marvelous slam dunk, puts them right in the depths of the sea. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what God does with our sins, and God himself will never see our sins anymore. Now listen to this. For there is sometimes in the mind of a Christian guilt feelings for sins already confessed. The average Christian goes around trying to bear his burden of guilt. I want you to hear what the Word of God says. Once sin has been forgiven by God and forgotten by God, there can never again be legitimate guilt upon the believer. Their sins are gone. Then why do we feel guilty? Two reasons. Mark these down. If you still feel guilty for a sin you've confessed, there are two reasons. One, you have not forgiven yourself. I find it so much easier to forgive others than to forgive myself. For many years I had such a horrible attitude towards me that it was miserable living with me. I couldn't get along with me. And finally I got to the point where I said this. Wait a minute. If God forgives me, then I should forgive me. I'm not greater than God. And if God can forgive me, I ought to be at least humble enough to acknowledge that I can forgive me. Why should I bear a grudge against me? And I have practiced this, and it has given me such peace of mind that I will forgive myself for anything that I think God would forgive me for. I confess it to God. I confess it to myself. And I go on. It's over. I refuse to accept guilt for that which I've confessed before God. For if I have not forgiven myself, I still feel guilty. God doesn't make me feel guilty. I do. There's one other thing. Revelation 12, 9 calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. If you are still feeling guilty about sins that are confessed and forgiven, it cannot be God. It cannot be the Holy Spirit who is putting that conviction on your heart and soul. It is the devil, and I am not going to let the devil accuse me of that which I am free of. If the devil can persist, I will ask him, show it to me on God's book. Because God has removed it. Friends, you can go from this room this morning absolutely free of any guilt in your life, knowing that you are free in the presence of God, and that is based on the condition. And that will be the point I wish to emphasize just for a moment. The condition of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is a two-way street. It demands a certain attitude on part of both forgiver 
and the one to be forgiven. Now, God's part has already been done. From His grace and love, He offers forgiveness freely and lovingly. But His holiness demands more. First John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful just to forgive us our sins. But watch, the blood of Christ. In 1 John 2, 2, He is a propitiation. He is the one who has paid the penalty. Forgiveness on God's part was not an arbitrary forgiveness. It was based on His holiness. The penalty has been paid for our sins, but the blood of Christ atoned for that. God looks and says the price has been paid. Now I can forgive. And now He offers pardon and forgiveness. But on man's part, there is also a corresponding attitude. A man cannot be forgiven who does not want to be forgiven. Now you may have a forgiving attitude towards the person who has sinned against you, but if he does not respond, forgiveness is not complete. God commands us in Luke 17, 4, that if your brother repent, forgive him. Now if God can command us to forgive anyone who repents to us, can he do less? And the answer is no. Therefore, God is going to make certain that he forgives. But God cannot forgive one who will not be forgiven. In 1830, a man by the name of George Wilson killed a government employee who caught him in the act of robbing the mail. Wilson was tried, found guilty, sentenced to die by hanging. Some friends knew that he had been in the army with the one who is now president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. They knew he had fought bravely and nobly under him. They knew he had fallen into very difficult circumstances because of injuries received in the wars. And therefore they approached the president and asked him to grant this man a pardon on the basis of his past loyalty to his country, his great deeds and the difficulties that he had had. And to the surprise of everyone, Andrew Jackson wrote out a pardon freeing George Wilson from any guilt of any penalty of any crime releasing him as a free man. To the amazement of everyone, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. This brought everyone into total confusion. What should be done with Wilson? They couldn't let him out of jail, he wouldn't leave. Uh, they couldn't hang him, he'd been pardoned. The case went directly to the United States Supreme Court and Chief Justice Marshall, the greatest of the three justices that we have ever had, wrote this Court opinion, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And hanged he was. I tell you this morning that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and he can forgive you, but you must accept that pardon. Let me give some very quick application and we're through. How does this apply to me then? How can I put this into everyday life? First, man is made in the image of God. God is a God of pardon. Therefore, he expects us to be those who forgive others. There is no truer little couplet than this expression to err is human, to forgive divine. Especially redeemed man. The redeemed man is made in the image of God. He has a divine nature and therefore should find forgiveness coming naturally. If you find it difficult to forgive, it may be because you have never been forgiven. This is a good test 
of the degree of our love to God and our acceptance. Our forgiveness from God is conditioned upon our forgiving others. The Lord stated in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, If you do not forgive others, I won't forgive you. The person with an unforgiving heart shows he does not understand the nature of forgiveness. And finally, the more we are aware of God's forgiveness to us, the easier it is to forgive others. This brings us to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When I think of not forgiving someone else, I have to ask myself, what is there that anyone could do against me that would measure up in any circumstances to what I have done against God? And if God can forgive me for my sins, I should be willing to forgive anyone for any sin against me. I trust this morning that you will realize who is a God like unto Him who forgives sins. Heavenly Father, we pray that...